Movies, Adam. Movies. I'm getting right into it because the movies. Our Adam. discussions always end up in the movies, anyways. So hey, we're just we're just kind of the middleman. We're here. We're movies. What movie isn't or is a D and D movie, but isn't a D and D movie? Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's roll. Let's roll. I got a fifth. All right. You answer yourself first. Um. I mean, Jurassic Park. Yeah. They bring the whole group together uh, one piece at a time. They got to go fight monsters. Yeah. And- I mean, we could just rattle off a list. What do you got? I'm going to say the middle 70% of Star Wars A New Hope. Okay, from, yeah. From the cantina, really from getting the droids, when mm-hmm. Luke buys the droids, all the way up to escaping the Death Star. Okay. It's not a D&D movie when they're running the trench run, right? No. It just no. isn't. I'm, it's a skill challenge. But like, <laughs> and up until that point is all exposition, up until Luke gets the droids. But but no, putting the team together, rescuing the princess... I mean, it starts off in a fucking tavern, right? Yep. Like, it just, there it is. There's your d and I could, I could and I will make that a very veiled D&D plot line. And I will get it past most 90% of the people. Yeah. Right? Um, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. Oh, 100%. I was going to mention Indiana Jones next. I, I also like uh, to think of Serenity, the Firefly movie. Mm-hmm. That, that's a D&D campaign. I mean, in space with cowboys, but it's still a D&D game. You know what wasn't one? The Dungeons and Dragons movie. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to a unique episode in our discussion on Dungeon Master Tips for Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition. Normally, we sit down with a set of rules, a general DM trope, or some advice based on our decades of experience, and aim to clarify, inspire, and entertain. This week, however, we wanted to step outside 5th edition and look at part of Dungeons & Dragons culture that brings us the most shame as nerds. And no, I don't mean neckbeards, the book of erotic fantasy, or, well, 4th edition. Ah. Instead, we're going to be looking at the movies that carry the title of Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Adam, and with me today is Dan, and this episode is called Media-Sized Creatures. What some of you might not know is that there has been an announcement to the world that a new D&D movie is in the works. As of this recording, it is slated to be released in 2023, and it has already been cast. Not many details are known about it, but it's understood that it will have nothing to do with the other three movies. That's a wise decision. Three movies, you say? Yes. Three fucking movies. So, let's jump right in. And no, we don't give an OTOG shit about spoilers. You shouldn't watch these movies. We will summarize this and you will feel better for having learned what not to do without feeling worse for having seen these hot steaming piles of garbage. I, I wondered when you walked into my uh, room what that thousand mile stare, just like that narrow pupil, white blanched face, like you've just seen a ghost. And Adam, we love horror movies, so it couldn't be that you saw something scary per se. But I guess, did I, you actually sit down and watch them? I, I had seen the first one. I've seen the first one about three times. Yeah, same. Um, and then I sat down with Dave, actually, because um, he's in my COVID bubble. And we uh, we watched the other two together. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Back to back. I'm sorry. Uh, the first one is an hour and 45 minutes, and the third one is eternity. <laughs> so let's jump into it. Let's go into the first one that's uh, from, from uh, the year 2000. Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying this was released a year before Fellowship of the Rings. But when you watch it, it feels like it was released in 1989. 
So here's the plot. And I'm just, I'm reading right off of the wiki page because I tried to summarize this and I couldn't get my own horrible spite out of it. And I was just going to be a, an hour and a half rant today. Okay, cool. So, so I'm just going to read the plot and then I'll break down kind of why it is the way that it is. And then we can talk about it a bit. Sure. So this is the first one. The Empire of Izmir has long been divided land, ruled by the mages, an elite group of powerful warlocks. Already I'm mad. In the capital of Sumdal, an evil mage... <laughs> How many doll? Yeah, an evil mage named Profion creates a magical scepter that can allow him to control gold dragons. Um. But his attempt to control an individual fails and he's forced to kill it. Um. It didn't even get a breath weapon when, and he killed it with like a rancor. No, I'm going to keep going. As he begins to make new plans, the dragon bleeds into the nearby river, causing it to catch fire, which many inhabitants of Sumdal notice, including a pair of teenage thieves, Wrigley and his best friend Snails. So far, this is a, like, young fiction. Yeah, right? yeah. Later, Profian and the Council of Mages discuss the controversial views of Empress Savina, who wants to give rights to non-mages in Izmir. Because there's a class system of if you don't have magic, you're a poor peasant motherfucker. For a D&D campaign, having a city that has that dynamic is a good thing to do. This is the only kingdom we get. Oh, okay. Never mind. When the council threatens to confiscate from her the scepter that allows her to control gold dragons, she decides to seek the Rod of Savril, which has the power to control red dragons. Okay. Profian learns of this and decides to take the rod himself. Meanwhile, Ridley and Snails break into the Sumdal Magic School to steal whatever items they can to become rich, but are discovered by a young mage named Marina. She is distracted when the library wizard is held hostage and interrogated by Profian's assistant, Damodar, for information on the map of uh, the map to the rod. Okay. Remember the name Damodar, friends. After the wizard refuses to talk and sends the map over to Marina, Damodar kills him, and Marina travels through a portal to escape, unintentionally taking the thieves with her. After crashing into a pile of garbage, they meet a dwarf named Elwood, a dwarf with the word wood in his fucking name. Elwood the dwarf... Okay, I'm moving on. Who ends up joining the three's <laughs> escape through the sewers. Damodar puts a price on Marina, Ridley, Snails, and Elwood's heads, and after letting Profian know that the group got away with the map... Profian creates a tentacled monster inside Damodar, which painfully possesses him. How this helps, we don't know. No. It, I think it's one of those don't fail me again or more tentacles. Anyway. Sure. Um, and by putting the tentacle monster inside him, this is not the fisherman's wife. This is like he puts, this is Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Like it, in the ear, not up the, anyway. The Wessels. Yeah. The group hide inside a tavern, and read the map that Ridley and Marina get sucked into. Damodar and his minions attack Elwood and Snails, but they escape with the map. Ridley and Marina exit the map, and all decide to work together to find the rod. They must first find a ruby called the Eye of the Dragon, good and original there, that can open the door to a tomb containing the scepter. The eye is held by the Thieves' Guild in the city of Antius, whose leader, Xylus, reveals it to be in a maze puzzle of traps, and promises to give the group the Eye of the Dragon, if Wrigley successfully solves it, which he does. Of course. The random teenage thief from the, you know, lowly end of town is going to be the one who... Sure. I mean, yeah, that's a D&D campaign. Damodar suddenly arrives to capture him and his friends. Marina is captured instead, while Ridley, Snails, and Elwood escape with the Eye of the Dragon, meeting an elf named Norda. Norda the Elf and Elwood the Dwarf. I think they got their names Fuck. mixed up. 
who actually works for Empress Savina, whom she thus informs about Profine's plans upon hearing them from Ridley. And in his castle, Damodar interrogates Rena and uses the tentacles in his mind to gain her knowledge. Don't ask questions. Sure. Ridley and Snails break into Damodar's castle to rescue Marina, while Norda and Elwood stay behind because they couldn't pay them for those days on set. After Ridley and Snails <laughs> decide to split up, Ridley finds and rescues Marina, but Snails is confronted by Damodar after he finds the map and a fight ensues between the two, with Damodar gaining the upper hand. When Ridley and Marina arrive, Snails throws the map to his comrades but at the cost of his own life as he is killed by Damodar before being thrown off the castle. Ridley, infuriated and filled with rage, but not like a barbarian's rage, just, no! Yeah. Attacks Damodar to avenge his friend, but he disarms him and stabs Ridley with his own sword. Uh, him getting stabbed with his own sword was my favorite part of the whole movie. You're forgetting the very important part about that castle. My what? least favorite part of that entire fucking movie. Oh, yeah, okay. Dan, do your PSA now. Beholders are not guard dogs. That's it. That's it. There's just beholders are not guard dogs. Just because they have eyes doesn't mean they're guard dogs. Dragons were just giant flapping lizards in this too. Yeah, yeah. They, someone like their kid had a dean. Oh, we're not fine. Just keep going. Okay. Marina grabs some magic dust and creates a magic portal to escape with Ridley. Meanwhile, it's just magic dust. Meanwhile, during a council meeting, Profion and Savina's factions decide to battle for control of Izmir using magic. The big set-piece fight is nowhere near our main characters. At the same time, an elf heals Ridley along with Norda's soldiers. Later, Marina finds Ridley and tries to help him get over the death of Snails. But Ridley, still feeling remorseful of his friend's death, angrily scolds her for letting Snails die instead of saving him. After a brief argument between the two in which Marina convinces Ridley that Snails' death is not in vain, they eventually forgive each other and become love interests. Aww. Ridley later uses the Eye of the Dragon to enter the tomb that contains the rod. It is held by a skeleton that comes to life and tells Ridley he is Savril, now cursed for trying to control red dragons, and anyone who wields the power of the rod shall suffer a horrible fate. But Damodar arrives to steal the rod. Damodar returns to Sundal with the rod, where the Empress and her gold dragons are battling the mages, following Profrian below, to bring it to Profrian, but Ridley and his friends follow in pursuit, Profrian removes the monster from Damodar and uses the rod to summon red dragons. Which, Let the blood rain down from the skies. Yeah. Yeah. Which battle the gold dragons and slowly begin to win the fight. Ridley comes across Damodar, duels him with his new magic sword, and then successfully wounds the latter before finishing him off, hurling Damodar off the castle wall to his death, finally avenging snails. He then attacks Profrian, who disarms him and shoves him back. Ridley's companions arrive and fight Profion one at a time because Power Ranger rules. Yep. Ridley picks up the fallen rod and uses it to stop the red dragon. Marina encourages Ridley to use the rod to bring Profion down, but Ridley, realizing the rod's power will corrupt him, refuses and destroys it. Empress Savina arrives and condemns Profion, who fights her with powerful magic, but she summons a gold dragon which devours Profion, ending the battle and Profion's reign of terror. Just eats him. At... There's been no, like, they shoot little fireballs at each other in the air, and this little air battle in the background, but just, anyway. anyway. We, 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 Ridley later visits Snails' grave with Norda, Marina, and Elwood, and pays tribute to his fallen comrade. When he places the Eye of the Dragon on the grave, Snails' name disappears, and Norda tells Ridley not to question his abilities. Norda then uses the Eye of the Dragon to transport Ridley to another place in the world where his friend would await for him, along with herself, Marina, and Elwood. End credits. What? Yep. 
There's no explanation of any of that shit. Just, just bullshit crazy magic happens. Sure. Okay. So, let me give you a little bit of the background of this movie getting made as well. Okay. It was directed by a man named Courtney Sullivan. His only other credits are An American Haunting, which was the least frightening based on a true story horror movie that I've ever seen. Okay. And Getaway, the 2013 action thriller starring Ethan Hawke and Selena Gomez that literally no one remembers. I'm, I'm sorry, what? Yep. This was produced, however, by Joe Silver. Oh, okay. So for those of you that don't know who Joe Silver is, uh, he's given us a lot of fun movies like The Nice Guys, both Robert Downey Jr., Sherlock Holmes movies, The Matrix, 13 Ghosts, V for Vendetta... All the Lethal Weapons and the first two Diehards, the first two Predators, Weird Science, Commando, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That's a good list. That's a good list. Yeah. But he also gave us House of Wax, Ghost Ship, Gothica, Dragon Eyes, Splice, Return to House on Haunted Hill, the other two Matrix movies, Exit Wounds, Swordfish, and other ones that are even worse than that Swordfish list. isn't too terrible. <laughs> His resume is lopsided. Yes. Although he does have more hits. Unfortunately, most of those hits are before the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that he also produced Roadhouse, Demolition Man, Hudson Hawk, Action Jackson, 48 Hours, and then later in his career, a Limp Biscuit music video? So you can tell when his heyday was. And yeah. It, it was not during when this movie was made. The production studio is New Line Cinema, who must have learned what not to do because then they released Lord of the Rings like a year later. Right? Oh, they were the same production studio. Same production studio, production at the same time. Wow, okay. And that one Well, was, budget. Well, that one was a masterpiece because it had a huge budget. This had $36 million, which sounds like a lot, but is really not. It's not It's not much movie, this, even, even in the year 2000. This was written by Topper Lillen, who is known for writing a script about a bank robber who may or may not have had a stroke. And then nothing for another 14 years when he did another project that no one's ever heard of. It was also written by Carol Cartwright, who is also responsible for writing that stroke movie and another script about a child caught in a divorce. Oh. So there's not a whole lot of experience on the writing side here. No, no. It says that the plot is Profian, a tyrant, attempts to overthrow a peaceful kingdom ruled by a tough empress. Which is not at all what the movie is. No. But I do like the tagline of adventure hinges on more than just a throw of the dice. Okay, that's that's pretty good. Obviously, the person who wrote the movie didn't write that. So here's what we got. We got Jeremy Irons, who was Profian, the bad guy. Um, for those of you who don't know, it was Alfred in the DCEU. And he's immediately recognizable as the voice of Scar in the animated Lion King movie. Yep. Um, he's a powerhouse. Yeah. He's freaking amazing. He's, he's A-list. Yeah. Uh, he was. In, I mean, his agent hates him, but he's A-list. Yeah, he was in Lolita, The Man in the Iron Mask, and the criminally underrated Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yep. Where he played Simon. Um, Bruce Payne played Damodar. And he was in Highlander Endgame, Passenger 57, and Howling 6. The other 91 acting credits seem to be for films I've never heard of. And that's saying something. That is saying something, yeah. Uh, Thora Birch yep. plays uh, Empress Savina. She's from American Beauty and um, Ghost World. I've liked her since she was like the kid in what Patriot has she done Games, recently? and uh, she's she's working. Okay, so, um, she recently was in The Walking Dead. Oh yeah, okay. And she actually had a pretty fun part. And this is after it got good again when they finished all that Negan shit. So okay, Justin Whalen is Ridley Freeborn. His only other credits are he was uh, he was. Uh, Jimmy Olsen in the Superman show, right? Lois and Clark. Yeah. Yeah. 
He was also the boy that got Chucky in Child's Play 3. And recently, he's been doing nothing since 2009. Oh. Oh, no. I think he retired. Yeah, okay. I mean, you start in the Dungeons & Dragons movie, man. Like, put a fork in you. You're done. Okay, I've I've got a controversial opinion about this next one. Marlon Wayans played Snails. He is one of the most groaned-at actors in recent years, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, he's the slapstick overacting guy who usually plays idiots, horn dogs, and stoners. Yeah, he's he scary movie, a haunted house, little man, white chicks, right? That's what people know him from, which is too fucking bad because I believe there is secretly a great actor in there because he rocked it in Requiem for a Dream, in Living Color, and he was pretty fun in The Sixth Man. Yeah. I even kind of liked him in the first G.I. Joe movie, although he didn't really have a fuck of a lot to do. No, I, I honestly think he's the best of the Wayans brothers. I could make a argument for Damon Wayans, but I don't know. I just liked him in like Bulletproof and some of those. Sure. Anyway, anyway, not with this he, He's the Wayans about. brother that uh, actually tries new shit, right? Like he, he, he steps out of his comfort zone and you could tell. Who, Marlon Wayans? Marlon Wayans. Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think that he gave up on that. I think that he does movies that his brother does. Oh, okay. And and that's it. So um, we also had uh, Marina, um, who was played by Zoe McLellan, who I don't recognize from anything else, but some people will know her from JAG, Dirty Sexy Money, Designated Survivor in NCIS New Orleans. She's guest starred on House. Uh, she was on Star Trek Voyager and Law & Order SVU. Cool. So she's a TV actor and has great success doing it. Like, She's a main character on a number of those shows. Um, there was Lee Ehrenberg as Elwood, who is the dwarf. His claim to fame has been the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, where, he's the he's one of the pirates. Like the, well, they're the two Rosencrantz and Guildenstern running around. One yeah. can pull the eye out, and the other one that can't. Yeah, he's the one that can't. But uh, he was also Leroy in Once Upon a Time recently, and everybody seems to know him. Okay, okay. Then we got Kristen Wilson as Norda. She gave up acting after Mega Python versus. Gatoroid. Yeah, Here I thought Does This a Dragons the movie would be the low point of this podcast episode. <laughs> well, it's too bad because she was in Bulletproof, which I mentioned before, yep. and Walking Tall with The Rock. Yeah. And yep. she was in all three of the Eddie Murphy Duck Doolittle movies, right? So she had a little bit of a run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we also got Tom Baker in a cameo. He was Halverth the Elf. And I mean, of course, he's the fourth Doctor. Yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. He walked around in the background. I, I feel like he did someone a favor. Yeah, sounds like it. Showed up for a day and a half of filming and then, you know, ate some free food and left. So the runtime on this was an hour and 47 minutes. It's PG-13 and painfully so. The IMDb score is 3.6 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 10% from critics and 19% from audiences. And I just have to say, audiences do better. <laughs> Metacritic, Metacritic gave it a 14. My favorite review that I could find was from the Sci-Fi Movie page, which said, We still like it better than Attack of the Clones. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That was the nicest thing I could find about it. That wasn't obviously paid for. So, Dan, this movie is problematic at best. It is really a piece of shit through and through. Yes. It It did not represent the hobby well. No, not at all. It is everything bad about it. But do you know why? um, uh, It was written by people who don't play it, is my guess. Kind of. It was stuck in development hell for 10 years. Mm Mm-hmm. At which point, they were going to lose the rights on it and scrap the whole thing. And so they turned to one of the producers who had been championing it the entire time, uh, Courtney Sullivan. And they said, fine, you direct it. And he had no directing experience. Oh, no. So he took it over. 
And then he said, all right, fine, I will do this. And after he signed, they said, great, and use this script that you didn't like, that you already axed. We don't like your script. You're going to use this one. Oh, no. And that is how this movie came Has he ever released his script? Like, is there any... No, I, no, I couldn't find no? anything. Okay. I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. He does not like to talk about it. That's fair. It's a shit movie. It is a shit movie. But let's talk about the second one. Dungeons and Dragons, Wrath of the Dragon God, which is also called Dungeons and Dragons, the Elemental Might in some regions. Okay, cool. 100 years after the first film, Damodar is revived after he is defeated by Ridley Freeborn. Incidentally, he's the only returning actor, the yep. only returning character, and at no point does it say anything about 100 years later. Not in the movie it's, itself. It's just same character, same actor, same name, and all of a sudden he's no longer it, like a... It's just 100 years later. Oathbreaker Paladin. Um, he's been cursed by his former master, Profian, to walk the earth as an undead entity. There was nothing about that in the first movie, and Profian died at the... Doesn't matter, move on. Driven insane by the curse, he seeks revenge against the kingdom of Izmir. Not the guy who cursed him, obviously. Um, but and also the descendants of those who defeated him, but they're never name dropped. So apparently this is shit that was written on the back of a VHS. Anyway, moving on. After years of searching with the aid of two dark talon lizard folk shaman, he locates the orb of Falazur, an ancient artifact linked to the power of Falazur, a dragon god imprisoned under Saragasso's mountains. Okay. You'll, do you recognize any of these names? Yes, I do. Okay. There was a lot in this movie that was directly, like, pulled from the source material. Yeah, yeah. With the orb's power, he heals the curse and prepares to awaken the dragon to destroy Izmir. Lord Beric, a fighter and former captain of the King's Guard, now a bored lord of the king, and Melora, his wife, who is a young mage, investigate reports of poison gas emanating from Saragasso's cave and find a still-slumbering dragon. Researching the threat in Izmir's library, Melora excitedly reports to Oberon, the head of the Mages' Council, Ugh. that Falazur was imprisoned 3,000 years ago by a powerful ancient civilization called the Tyrannians, who also created the Orb. Can I just say something real quick? Sure. Oberon is the king of the fairies. Don't name some random wizard that. Like, it's, it's a nitpicky little fucking thing, but Oberon is the king of the fairies. Did you have an issue in Game of Thrones? With... Oberon? Prince Oberon? Yeah. Okay, get over it, Dan. It's a fantasy name. I know it's a fantasy name, but come on. Get, at least they didn't name him Pan. I've seen that in some I have seen that as that well. And that drives so. me up the wall. Yeah. Um, and not just because of Peter. Uh, anyway, so while trying to locate the orb through magic, Melora is cursed by the much more powerful Damodar and begins dying slowly. He has power, by the way, which is just I'm holding an orb and looking angrily into the camera. That's... That's it. There's no explanation of what's happening. Okay. She hides her illness from Beric, who is appointed by the king to assemble a party of adventurers small enough to infiltrate Damodar's lair undetected, but strong enough to face their enemies. Lux is a female barbarian. Dorian is a male cleric of Obed High. Uh, Ormeline is a female elven wizard. And Nim is a master thief. And he steals the fucking show. Uh, yes. Yeah. Together, they resolve to locate the vault of the warlock Malak a worshipper of the demon Dweeblex, who they call Jubilex. And they have it spelled wrong in the movie too. But I'm moving on from sure. that. Malak was gifted a magical scrying pool known as the Pool of Sight. Beric believes the pool will allow them to penetrate Damodar's defenses and reveal the orb's location. The party sets out to locate Malak's vault, while Oberon and the other mages try to decipher the tomes 
of Turian magic in their library to find a way to defeat the dragon. So you get these two plot lines going at the same time. Melora is sick and dying. She's been cursed. And they're trying to solve what this ancient, uh, essentially, riddle is. Yep. Um, and they've actually got, like, well, if you put the books in this order and you arrange them and then you cast a spell and then the elemental books. There's exist, some thought and, to it, yeah. Like, they're real. It is a D&D plot hook. It really is. Yeah. Um, and then there's also these guys are off on a quest to go do things and they're, they run afoul of monsters. And, and I would like to say, like, where, where the first D&D movie had, uh, its little its party was f- weird and stereotypical and and kind of no uh, cartoonish. It, it was a dwarf is a dwarf is a dwarf, right? right? Yeah. Um, the party represented here. I like. I was the really- acting isn't the greatest, but like they are represented well, especially the rogue. And I love the barbarian. The barbarian in it is stellar as well. The cleric is hilarious. So anyway, back to Barrack. Uh, his party's traveling through a haunted forest. They catch the attention of a powerful lich named Clax the Maligned, mm-hmm. uh, who offers his services to Damodar. Damodar doesn't trust him, but is confident that the orb makes him more powerful than Clax. After confronting a white dragon and losing Dorian in the fight, Beric's party finds the Pool of Sight, securing their way to Damodar's castle. Confronting him, Beric manages to take advantage of his overconfidence and steal the orb. Though Ormeline and Nim are badly wounded, before the wizard teleports them to the Temple of Obadai. While Ormeline and Nim are treated by the clerics, Beric rides back to Izmir, Lux staying behind to delay demons summoned by Damodar. Okay. Using his shape-changing abilities, Clax infiltrates Izmir's castle, kills Oberon in his bath, and assumes his shape. When Beric returns with the orb, Melora uses it to unlock a vault discovered beneath the castle, where the Turanians hid the secrets of their magic. Clax reveals himself, steals the orb back, and kills the king and many of the castle's inhabitants before returning the orb to Damodar. Falazor awakens and destroys the orb, regaining his godly power. Damodar asks Falazor to witness the city's destruction and to let him rule over it um, and its remains in Falazor's um, servitude. Sure. The dragon god agrees, but demands tribute in the form of a hundred human sacrifices for every new moon in honor of the release, to which Damodar's like, yeah, sure, okay. While Beric rides in pursuit, Melora, who is near death, manages to decipher the Turanian secrets and gains the blessing of Obed High, who gifts her a new orb, just out of nowhere. Sure. Beric and Lux meet up and confront Damodar, who no longer has the orb's power. They force him to cancel the curse, and she rallies the remaining mages in a magical attack. That sounds really cool and should have been, but wasn't, for budgetary reasons. Yeah. And uh, they defeat the dragon, sealing him away. Clax, who has no interest in helping Damodar, disappears with a laugh. In the aftermath, Izmir is rebuilt, with Beric immersed in his ministerial duties, and Melora appointed as the new head of the Council of Mages. Lux, Ormeline, and Nim are shown to have fully recovered from their wounds. Damodar is imprisoned in a dark dungeon beneath Izmir, but smiling to himself as if he is fully prepared to wait another hundred years to have his revenge. Okay. So, let me let me break down kind of the production of this. Uh, directed by Jerry Lively, who was a cinematographer that worked on Hellraiser 3 and Hellraiser Bloodline, Children of the Corn 3, Return of the Living Dead 3. Dude's got dude's got a pattern. Yeah. Um, he also did work on Dementomania, Clown Fear, and Friday, the movie with Ice Cube for some reason. Huh. Yeah. Um, as a director, the only other title I recognized was Darkness Falls. But 
I clicked on it to be like, oh, I love that movie. But it's not the one about the like the 2003 one with the Tooth Fairy, mm-hmm. like harassing Emma Caulfield. No, this one is the 1999 thriller about a small-time racketeer and some economic thievery, whatever the fuck that is, starring the guy that voiced Beowulf in that 3D abomination and the woman who played Audrey in Twin Peaks. So, like, this guy's a low-budget. Sure. It was produced by a guy named Steve Richards, who seems to have worked on a number of Joel Silver projects, including The Book of Eli, Return to House on Haunted Hill, House of Wax, 13 Ghosts, the second two Matrix movies, you know, all the bad ones. Yeah. Um, the first D&D movie was only his second Hollywood blockbuster um, after House on Haunted Hill. And based entirely upon his filmography, it seems like he's one of Joe Silver's regular colleagues in the latter part of Silver's career, which isn't great. Sure. Uh, he did have a couple of the hits, but nothing really worth mentioning. Yeah. Uh, we went from New Line to Skyline Films, and uh, it also listed is Lithuanian Film Studio. So we've taken a step downward. Uh, the budget is $15 million. Down from what, 36 you said before? Yeah. Yep. That shows. That's like the major constraint to this movie. Jerry Lively uh, is credited as being a writer. So the director is also the writer, along yep. with Robert Kimmel, who is known for his work as Additional Crew on IMDb. Um, and this is his only writing credit. Okay. And Brian Rudnick. And he's actually won an Academy Award for... No, I'm kidding. He, he wrote this, the sequel to this, and then wrote a documentary called Rolling the Dice, Adapting the Game to the Screen. <laughs> like this. Uh. I did find out that he directed some loosely veiled softcore porn that was marketed as erotic and scandalous thrillers in like the 90s too. So that that happened. Um Everybody needs a career change. Or shit, right? Sidestep. So the runtime of this was an hour and 45 minutes. It was not rated because it was a direct-to-DVD release. Uh, 4.7 on the IMDb score, up from 3.6. Yep. There were not enough reviews on Rotten Tomatoes to actually uh, warrant uh, Rotten Tomatoes, yep. Um, And Metacritic didn't touch it, although audiences on Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 29%. So that's up a little bit. Yep. Uh, my favorite review for this was, it resembles something made for the Sci-Fi Channel. Sure, yeah. And that's, that's, that's pretty that's accurate. Act. Yeah. This movie was not necessarily bad. It just was not necessarily good. It relied heavily on the fact that it didn't really have very many well-known actors. Um, well, it's funny. I went looking through the, the list of actors, and they're all BBC. And, like... It, it seems like they cast out of the BBC. Dave and I were talking about this afterwards. We not only enjoyed it, like, we sat down to rip the shit out of this movie. Yeah. Like, like lights on in the room, the bowl of, like, chips sitting there. We're just like, all right, we ready for this fucking nonsense. And I ran out of things to rip on, after, like, beside the budget, mm-hmm. like, ten minutes into the movie. It was decently well written. It's got some good jokes. You said Nim steals it. Lux is pretty damn... Uh, good as a uh, barbarian as well and and how they portray that strong female barbarian from 2003. So like this is a new type character, right? And that was one we haven't really seen a lot of. Dorian to me is one of my favorite characters in the show. From what I remember, it sucks that he eats shit with the white dragon, but... Yeah, he doesn't actually do a fuck of a lot in it. His introduction sticks with him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like the... Everybody stay quiet in church or whatever he says when he drops his hammer on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they bust into like, sir, you've been summoned by the king. And he just like, we do not speak in here. Bam, hammer on the ground. And it sends out a thunder wave and knocks everybody back. Yeah. The thing about this movie was 
as opposed to the first one, they used real fucking D&D spells. They had real fucking D&D monsters. And, and places and names. Yeah. Like Obed-Eye showed up a bunch of times. And that's the nature god from uh, Greyhawk. Yes. Yeah. This seems to be a like set in Greyhawk. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell that way more live went into this project. And they went in the cast out of the BBC, which Dave and I were thinking about it. And we came up with the idea that that's really the perfect place to cast people from. Between... Arthurian legends, uh, Shakespeare ridiculousness, like sure. much ado about nothing. Yeah. And, you know, the trees are marching and the hags and Macbeth and all that stuff. Right. With all of these kind of fantastical things kind of on the on the outside of proper regal sense. Like they you don't work as an actor in Britain without carrying a sword or riding a horse yeah. after a few years. It kind of made sense for them to cast out of this. And it fit perfectly. There was actually charisma between the actors. There's some decent amount of like roles behind every one of the actors. Like they they do a decent job. I don't think the acting is bad. I just think it's directionless. I think that they took a bunch of pretty solid actors and said, "Okay, we're going to set up the camera here. Say your lines." And the actors did their best with no direction. Mm-hmm. This we will see happens again in the third movie, but they don't have solid actors. Oh no. What are your thoughts on the second movie? Dan? You've been it, trying to cut me off this whole time, and I'm like, right. of the three, it's my favorite. Oh fuck yeah! Um, uh, the first one's a massive letdown. I remember being a uh, 13 year old Dudes and Dragons player and hearing hype about the Dudes and Dragons movie and losing my goddamn mind. And when this movie came out, I had such high expectations. Right? The first one, you mean? Yeah, the first one. And uh, my my buddy Nick, who's been on the podcast, and I, like, we went out and saw it. I, I don't think we saw it in theaters because I don't think it ever hit the theaters here. But uh, somehow we saw it. And I've, I, I vaguely remember both Nick and I walking out there, taking a moment, and then listing through the reasons why it was utter horseshit. Like, we knew right away. A couple of years later, we heard news of the second one in a dungeon in uh, one of the dungeon or dragon magazines, probably dragon. And we decided that we were going to pass on it because the first one was shit. Yep. And it was like several years after the second one was out where I finally was like, download the shit and just watch it. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. We have talked before. I'm not necessarily a, a opponent of bad movies that are just bad like i i find some sense of enjoyment out of just super cheesy movies i have a real trouble with the idea of so bad it's good i will never sit down and watch a sharknado movie like that shit just annoys me i mean yeah um th- i think there's a fine line between so bad it's good and just bad right i have a lower tolerance for yeah for bad movies yeah and this is not me saying that I have better taste by any means. I just have different criteria with which I enjoy movies. I think that you've got a far more robust tolerance for this kind of shit. And you're willing to cut people the benefit of the doubt. I've been on enough film sets in my life to say, no, you should fucking know better, man. I have seen volunteers do better shit than this. Mm-hmm. I have been and I have taught actors with less training than you have had do fucking better. Yeah. And so I am... I have... Sat, I mean, yes, in short films and student films and indie films. I've sat in the background of, of enough that I feel like I, I am not a chef. I am not a cook. I don't know what I'm doing in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I will do my best and you will get food. And it may be good, but it's not worth 30 bucks, right? But, you're but, but, but I, I have been in enough kitchens to know when a kitchen is run badly, 
Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and that's that's where I'm coming from on this. Okay, I am by no means an expert, but I'm knowledgeable enough. You're educated. So, yeah. Um, Dungeons and Dragons Three: The Book of Vile Darkness came out in 2012. I'm I'm already hooked because I I love the concept. This one, my God, directed by Jerry Lively again, produced by Steve Richards again. The production studio, Zinc Entertainment Incorporated. Oh, good. Yeah, it was also involved in the first or in the second one, uh, Zinc Entertainment, but it was like the third one, the third production studio listed. It's the first one now. Oh, no. So, yeah. The budget went from $15 million to $12 million. The writer is Brian Rudnick again, so it's the same team. Yep. And the plot um, is as such. Nag rule the foul. So we're already off source material. Sure. Uh, was an evil sorcerer who spread despair throughout his mortal life. As he neared his end, he sold his soul to the demon lords of the abyss. His skin was turned into pages, his bones into a cover, his blood became ink for the pages, and the book of vile darkness was born. Anyone who looked into the book became evil. The kingdom of Karkoth was consumed by evil until a group of warriors called the Knights of the New Sun arose and saved the people using amulets given to them by the god of light, Pelor. Okay, that's that, that yep. tracks. Pelor's, Pelor's Greyhawk. Using the amulet, they channeled the god's powers and light, and they overcame the darkness. Such power could be wielded owing to the purity of their hearts. The ink was destroyed by the knights, but the pages and the covers could not be recovered as the followers of Nagrul had them hidden. As people began to forget that Nagrul existed, the power of the knights dimmed. Not a bad setup. All done in narration, voiceover, in the first one minute of the movie without an actor to be seen. Oh, good. 2,000 years later, a new paladin named Grayson is recruited into the Knight Order. But, like all knights throughout the centuries, the power of the amulet is not granted to him by Pelor. However, before he can even pout, all the knights are killed and his father is abducted. Against his will, he becomes part of an evil crew looking for the horn that will lead him to the cover of the book. Now, against his will means he went to the nearby town looking for the barbarians that captured his father and killed the others. Yeah. Saw a bunch of them walk into a, te- into a brothel. Went and talked to a hooker. And the hooker goes, oh, well, I will charge you money for talking. He's like, no, no, no. I've got this ambulance. He goes, oh, no. Okay. Uh, my brother was let loosely affiliated with you guys. So I'll give you all this information for free. And then she gives him the best wisdom and the, more, and the most uh, foresight out of everything else in the entire movie. And she never shows up again. Doesn't really have anything to do except, like, hers is the most straightforward and down-to-earth thing and is gone 15 minutes into it. Oh, no. And, and like, it goes goes downhill from there. Then she says, yes, go join these, these people over there. And so he walked into the bar, and in order to sit at the table, you have to kill someone in our bar and prove that you have an evil heart. So, okay. so everyone in the bar, like, draws weapons. And then he just turns around and kills, like, the weak guy behind him who was going to kill him and ambush him. And then they're like, okay, you can sit with us. The crew is made up of Accordia, the Shatterkai sorceress, who is just a human with tattoos and facial piercings. Okay. Seath, a human assassin, Vimic, a Goliath barbarian, and Bez, a human vermin lord. Right. So the Book of Vile Darkness is an actual book that was released for 3.5, which you know. And is fantastic. It's a great supplement. Well, it was the book that... That said, hey, we're not doing PG-13 shit anymore. We're going up to rated R. Yeah. And its tagline was, this is not your brother's Dungeons and Dragons. This movie is rated R as well because boobies for a couple of scenes. And I'm not kidding. That's because boobies. Oh, okay. 
actually made Dave laugh out loud with how ridiculously cheesy and bad it was. <laughs> but all of these characters seem to be from the Book of Vile Darkness. Like it, this was promotional material for it. Well, the Book of Vile Darkness came out um, came out in 2002. So it would make sense. They they released the second book. The Book of Vile Darkness came out. They were already in uh, production for the second Dungeons and Dragons movie. So the writers picked up the Book of Vile Darkness and went, yeah, let's just make that. Yeah, I think that they probably had trouble getting the uh, the budget together for this. Yeah. So, anyway, the horn that they're looking for is guarded by a wyvern that is slain by Grayson. Uh, not by sword, but by magic. Which he's not allowed to do, use arcane magic. So he's got a whole bunch of rules that he says right at the beginning in his oath. I will never do this, I will never do this, I will never do this. And immediately breaks it off. And then slowly starts to corrupt himself. And that's the plot line we're doing okay. here. Okay. Uh, the horn leads them to encounter an undead child called a slaymate. Fuck. Where they are forced to let it feed on their negative energy in order to prove themselves free of decency and thus worthy of obtaining the book's cover. The slaymate hungrily feeds from the morally bankrupt Bez. Grayson's unlawful deeds are enough to pacify the creature. Um, by the way, he's also banging a cordia on the side and he's supposed to be celibate. So that's a plot point that they've skipped okay. on this. But when a Cordia actually steps forward. Her burgeoning feelings for Grayson poison the creature, and she fails the test. The slaymate then summons a helmed horror to kill them before disappearing. Disposing of the construct, they finally retrieve the cover of the book. Okay. This is one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever seen because they animated like, um, uh, what's a good... Remember the, the animation level of the... Liquor at the end of the first um, Resident Evil movie. Sure, yeah. Right? And, like, it's clearly CGI, but it's the best we had at the time. Yeah. It's that level of animation in 2012. Age of Ultron has... Or, no, the first Avengers movie has been released at this point. Oh. So, it, it's that. But it's it's a monstrous little girl who is, acts like she's about eight years old, but, like, the dripping flesh and gross, like... And not like, oh, cool effects, but just, well, I turned to Dave and like, that does not look like an undead person. He goes, no, it's a, that's a creepy monster thing. And then in order to suck up the the evil energy, you have to put your finger in her, in her mouth and she slurps at your finger for about 15 seconds. It is bizarrely uncomfortable to watch this. And then she gets really excited and like moans and shit while she sucks the finger. It's gross. It's gross. Anyway... Accordia makes contact with the evil Lord Shathrax, who is just some dude with his mouth sewn shut. He's got a big red gem in his forehead, and he's got girls on chains that speak in unison for him, but not in unison enough that you can understand what the fuck they're saying. Anyway, the only reference I could find online for Shathrax was a uh, bunch of Mind Flayer huh. fan art. So I don't know what the fuck is going on with this guy. Anyway... He's got the pages of the book within his stronghold in The Shadowfell and plans to extract the ink from the blood of the purest knight, Grayson's father. So these guys just step forward into, like, through a thin space in reality yep. into The Shadowfell. There's no idea of portals or how they got in there. They got the cover of the book and they just step in there. So they just, like, cross the street and we're in The Shadowfell now. Pretty much. And it was like, and they're in the castle. And you don't know whether or not to, if you don't know D&D, the Shadowfell sounds like it is the name of the castle they are in. Oh, okay. So there's no, there's no, uh, there's no premise or setup. There's no either. premise, setup, description, exposition of no, uh, anything. Uh, there's of... fog outside the castle. That's what you get. 
Like, immediately against the walls of the castle. Oh my god, okay. So, because Grayson refuses to kill his father and reminds him that they must be the last beacon of hope, Grayson, the guy who's been falling to corruption this whole time, then is granted the power of Pelor. And alongside with Accordia, he manages to stop Shathrax before he can complete making the book. What they skip over is the fact that they actually defeat Grayson in combat and hook him up to the evil soul-sucking machine first, where they extract, and I quote, liquid pain from a rubber-looking corset that has that Dave said looked like a milking machine because it had four tubes coming out of his stomach. Yeah. And it's this black leather corset wrapped around him, and he's screaming, quote-unquote, in pain. This is not good acting. Um, and it... This liquid pain that comes out of him is this black sludge that they then like. I mean, that tracks. The liquid pain that comes out of me is black sludge. Like, so fuck, it is just it <laughs> is bad. Even though they love that's each I, other, that's what I call Taco Bell. Twelve hours later, <sighs> liquid pain. <laughs> Accordia and Grayson part ways at the end because of their different natures. Womp womp. The actors here are. Oh wait, that's the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie. Oh okay. Yeah, the actors here. Um, have done not a fuck of a lot. There is um, a police captain from Avengers Age of Ultron, Sewer Thug Number 2 in The Dark Knight Rises, a minor role in the background of Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, Okay. Uh, video game voiceovers. The main guy was Andy Flynn on EastEnders on BBC. Okay. And uh, then people have been like short films and, and shit that I'd never heard of. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This thing, Dan... My God, this was painful to watch, and not like haha. No, I thought I thought one of them was directed by you, Bull. No, like no, you straight up made that shit up. I don't know. You've you quoted that to me in the past, and I'm like, no, man, you're wrong. This was this thing had a runtime of an hour and thirty minutes, and Dave and I were ready to like turn it off about twenty minutes in. You, Bull, directed the Dragonlance movie that starred Jason Statham. I think that's what I was thinking of. Sure. Yeah, because there there are other Dungeons and Dragons movies, but they we're just talking about the ones that say Dungeons and Dragons in the title card. Yeah, man, I can't sit through much more shit. Like I've no, I've tapped want... out for twenty twenty one on this. Okay. Anyway, they got an IMDb score of four point four, so less than the second, more than the first. Yeah. Okay. Um, probably because uh, boobs, and there was nothing on Rotten Tomatoes from anyone, and Metacritic. Just did not acknowledge this thing existed. Okay. My favorite review that I could find on page two of a Google search, Dan, was from a guy named Mr. Towelhead. Oh, no. So I had to to dig deep. Who said, I have mixed feelings. The Book of Vile Darkness is clearly targeting young adult male uh, fantasies, including boobs and gore. But the CGI and fight scenes are so awkward and bad, you feel sorry for the actors. On the other hand, the film may be for fans of the series, but has no redeeming value nor does it have any redeeming value for fantasy fans. I mean, dude's right. So, here's the other thing. Courtney Sullivan, who directed the first one, the poor producer that was brought in to direct yep. that, was also a producer on these two movies and seems to be the driving force behind the entire franchise of films. Okay. Remember, producers are not directly responsible for the writing, directing, or acting. The content, yeah. They're responsible for... The for funding the effects, making sure that the location scouting is done well, making sure that you've got the right prop masters and uh, set designers, right? And they're there for more of the aesthetic and the feel and providing, honestly, a shit ton of money. Yeah. It's a problem when producers start to interfere with their quote-unquote vision 
right? Which is where we start to get weird lopsided films. But Courtney Solomon said he did not want to direct or be a part of that. Okay. So this guy seems to be the driving force to get these movies made, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's the one that is responsible for this. Is what I'm banking on because he's also responsible for the 2023 movie that's coming up. Oh, no. So we're going to jump into that after this quick break. Are you going to behave for this commercial? Almost certainly not. Why do I even bother with you? Why do you bother me? That's not what... Hey, everyone, and welcome to another stupid commercial that I don't want to fucking... Adam. Daniel. Will you just... Please? Hi, everyone. It's that time again where... Thank God. Dan, I'm trying to record a commercial here. It's that time again where we remind you that we have a mailbag episode coming up soon. So if you have any questions, comments, or random thoughts for any of the hosts, please let us know. We actually really look forward to the mailbag episodes because it lets us talk directly with you guys, the listeners. NPCs. Most of the questions these days are directly related to D&D, but you know we'll answer just about anything. Want to answer why you bother me? Stop it. You can send us direct messages through Instagram, find the post on the subreddit, or send us an email at info at So the next time you're listening to an episode and struck with a quandary, perplexity, or bewilderment... Take a few seconds and type out a quick message for any one of the hosts. We'll make sure that your question gets added to the list. And also remember to enter our giveaways for a chance to have an entire episode dedicated directly to you. It's these interactions that bring the most joy to our lives. That and beer. What? You know what? We really should just get together to answer some questions one day and get drunk. Remember the time I showed up drunk for that one episode? Oh my god, I edit so much out of that one. This advertisement has been brought to you by cirrhosis and idiocy. Please drink responsibly. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my real dad, Dan. Okay, so Dungeons and Dragons 2023. We don't know if it has a subtitle yet to it, but... What do we know of it? Here's what we know, and it's precious fucking little, Okay. John Francis Daly is one of the two directors. Now, we see a lot of director team-ups these days, so that doesn't scare me. Okay? You know him because he was an actor that played Sam in Freaks and Geeks. He was Lance in Bones. And he was also in Game Night, Horrible Bosses, and Waiting. Yeah. He directed Game Night and the recent Vacation movie. I actually... His name being attached to the project gives me hope. I like him. I like him, too. He works with Jonathan Goldstein, who directed Vacation and Game Night with him. Yeah. It's produced by Dennis L. Stewart, who produced both the Ninja Turtles movies with Megan Fox, Cowboys and Aliens, Iron Man 2, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, Not great movies, but big budgets. Big budgets, yeah. And decent set pieces on all of them, too. By the time that you... Like, I didn't hate the CGI shit. I didn't like the turtle design. But there was there's nothing egregious in any of those movies that stands out. If you were to put a better script... Not not that a producer would have affected. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And of course, our good friend Courtney Solomon is part of this as well. Right? Yeah. So the production studio is Paramount Pictures. Okay, we're, we're at a reputable studio. Yep. Entertainment One, Hasbro. Yep. And yep. AllSpark Pictures. Hasbro makes sense because they own Watsy. They own the... Yeah. They own the and, and AllSpark makes sense when you realize that it's Dennis L. Stewart who did Ninja Turtles movies and um, Cowboys and Aliens. AllSpark is named, of course, after the Transformers, the AllSpark. Yeah. Right? Which is Michael Bay. Like, it's his side project. Sure. Right? Yeah. The budget is unknown. 
But the writers for this, besides the game writers that are credited to it, mm-hmm. are the two directors. So it's a solid vision from the writer-director combo. Sure. We don't have a tagline, obviously. There's no plot. We don't know a runtime. There's no rating that's been announced for it. And, of course, there's no reviews. We do know the cast. We know the... Do we know all of the cast or most of the cast? We know six people for the cast. Okay. Sorry, seven people for the cast. Chris Pine, who was Captain Kirk in the reg- in the new Star Trek... Um, he was also Steve Trevor in Wonder Woman, and he played the voice of Peter Parker in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I didn't know, so I looked it up. No, he didn't. Yes. That was, that wasn't Chris Pine. That was the guy from New Girl. Oh, uh, yes, but the good Peter Parker, Peter Parker A. Yeah, that died. Not Peter Parker B. He yeah, played yeah, yeah. the good Peter Parker that died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'd have Michelle Rodriguez, who is Letty from Fast and Furious, Anna Lucia from Lost, Rain from the Resident Evil movies. And, uh, uh, the L- best part Lose. of the Resident Evil movies, I'm, I will contend. Oh, we'll we'll argue in another episode of sure. Resident Evil movies. Uh, she was also in Machete. Yeah, uh, both Machete's movies. She's a fantastic uh, action actress. When I sat down to think about Dungeons and Dragons, I went, "Well, if we have a barbarian, I hope it's Michelle Rodriguez." And so then I looked this up and went, "Oh shit, look at that!" Yeah. Um. Well, then we have Just Justice Smith, who is the kid who was freaking out the whole time. Um. In uh. Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. Uh, he also played Chester in Generation, which is a new show that's out that is getting a lot of acclaim. Yep. He's done a couple things recently that I've that my wife and I have been like, oh, that looks interesting. Let's watch it. And we're... I he's mean, not a bad actor. He's not a bad actor, but he's... He seems to act at the same caliber as the people around him. Yes. And if he's put up with the crisp pines of the world, then he should do okay. Yep. We also got Regé Jean Page who is Simon and Bridgerton, Chicken George in the Roots remake, and Leonard Knox in For the People. This, is he the guy that quit Bridgerton? I don't know, man. I don't watch that shit, and I don't pay no, attention to neither it. Neither do I, it but is, I think... That movie is problematic, at, or that that series is problematic at best. Yes. It is. It masquerades as being all about equality, while it actually really undermines a lot of the idea of anyways i've got a lot of things to say sure. about bridgerton it's, if 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 he quit bridgerton to go be on the Dungeons and dragons movie this dude's my new favorite <laughs> so sure okay we also get uh sophia lillis who was bev from it the new oh it yeah movies. okay yeah um and uh chloe coleman who is the girl from my spy who gives Dave Bautista shit in all of the... Like, I've seen nice. the trailers. Yeah. Nice. She was also Sky in uh, Big Little Lies, for those of you who know that. And we got Hugh Grant as the villain. He has been oh. set up as the villain role, and his name is Forge Fletcher, which just fucking annoys me right off the bat. Yep. Forge Fletcher. Okay, so normally I'd be like, ah, uh, Hugh Grant. I mean, eh, but... uh. The gentleman was great, and he was great in it. So I, I I reserve judgment on that one. Let's roll initiative, and let's talk about what we want to see, what we hope they avoid, what we probably expect. But let's let's roll. We'll go through. I got an eleven. I got a nineteen. So the very first thing that I want to see from this is dragons with intelligence. If you're going to bring in intelligent creatures, bring in dragons that can fucking talk. Audiences are ready for it. We saw Smaug. Yeah. We don't need the dragons, sorry, the wyverns from Game of Thrones, right? And, like, there were dragons in all three. No, only the first two. It was a wyvern in the third one. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. But, like, 
No, none of them had lines. None of them showed any sort of real intelligence. They're about as intelligent as dogs. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm I'm with you on that one. What do you uh, for for me, what I want to see, um, you said get the dragons right. I'm just like get the monsters right. If you're gonna pull from the source material, which you're making a Dungeons and Dragons movie, make it right. Um, get your monsters right. My biggest gripe about the first one, as I've said dozens of times, is the fact that they got beholders wrong. Put a beholder in this movie and make it right. I don't need it to be a beholder, though. Whatever you do. Yes. I, I, I don't even need it to be Forgotten Realms or Eberron. Like, you make up your new world. That's fine. But keep it consistent with the source material yes. that's been handed out. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's my second thing. Put some fucking dungeons in it and put some goddamn dragons in it. Sure. Actually live up to the freaking title instead of just having it be some shitty fantasy romp. Do you have another? I, I honestly, my other thing is, um, and with actors like Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez, I know that the budget is going to be a little bit more open. And with D&D being in the cultural um, limelight right now, I know they're going to put a good budget on this. So please, friends, when you are dealing with spells or these grotesque um, monsters or things that defy physical constraints and you need to make them CGI, please make it seamless. It is not hard to have seamless CGI in our modern day world, especially in these big budget movies. My big thing I want to see in this movie is seamless effects. I don't want to see any more off contrast dragons flying on a landscape like we see that all okay over these all right hold on anyway. okay dan what do you want to avoid then what, what do i want to yeah in these movies what what pratfalls do we need to avoid uh, i mean the racial stereotypes that come with a lot of these movies need to be avoided we saw that with um, the World of Warcraft movie was pretty bad for that. It was really bad for that. And, and for me, I like the lore of World of Warcraft quite a lot. And that movie did the lore quite well. But there were some things that were just eyebrow raising with our current culture. So let's let's actually have it written in such a way where the racial stereotypes are avoided. D&D is going that way with how they've changed orcs and drow. Let's... Yeah, and they need to they need to commit to that because mm-hmm. one of the things that made me raise my eyebrows it and it's so subtle but it's there um, was the orcs in the World of Warcraft movie having cornrows and dreadlocks and that shit annoyed me. Mm. I mean, guys, come on! <laughs> Don't talk to me about your influences here. Fucking come on! You know what audiences are going to go to this movie? It's the Western world is yep. going to see this movie. Don't fucking lean into the stereotypes. I'm with you 100%. The thing that I desperately like, the one thing I need them, I need them to fucking avoid in this, do not be a Lord of the Rings clone. I do not want sad, gritty fantasy. Yes. I don't want slow motion elven songs. You don't you want you don't want a uh, tour in New Zealand ad? I really love the Lord of the Rings movies and I thought they were great and I would love to get more of them, not The Hobbit. I would love to see more Lord of the Rings content, not The Hobbit. The way that Peter Jackson handled Middle Earth except The Hobbit was great, but I've seen it. I don't want that for Dungeons and Dragons. It needs to be a unique property. And so they need to find a niche that sits outside of that and just the generic bullshit of Dragonheart and Aragon and all these other movies. I'm not talking about the books. The movies of generic 
fucking well that was that, that was gonna be one of the things that i i wanted to avoid as well i don't want to see chris pine be a you said you don't want that uh heavy uh gritty realistic fantasy i don't want to see him be that that typical leading role trope in these serious fantasy movies of being the you know the charming guy the 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 charming tortured white fighter character that will lead the party to success he's always the one standing in the middle right I, i i mean it's chris pine he's your leading actor he's your biggest name you know that, that Michelle Rodriguez is going to be the tough girl and that is going... They're going to end they're, up sleeping together. They're going to play into that part. I No, I really wish they don't. I don't want to see a romantic interest for Chris Pine in a movie. I would like to see a Dungeons & Dragons movie without a romantic interest. Yes, I agree. Um, I thought it was really, really cool in the second one that's already been released, The Wrath of the Dragon God. It's the fact that they start off your main character, he is married. Mm-hmm. The wife sees this hot barbarian girl that, that's going to go off to quest with him and she says... Now, do I have anything to be worried about? And he's like, no, you have nothing to work to be worried about. And then he's committed to her for the entire time. And there's like, he bonds and becomes friends with this barbarian. But there's not even a hint of, of romance, romance yeah. or sexuality or anything. I don't need that in my fantasy. And it is going to be handled improperly by the people that watch the movie and try to mimic it around their tables. Yeah. Don't put that shit in there. So... Do you have anything that uh, that you expect to see? Like it, this is just we're destined to get it. Uh, I'm uh, the cheesy one-liner is going to like the the super cheesy quote, like the let the blood rain down from like the overacting moments. I know there's going to be at least one of them in this. I'm kind of hoping there's one, but then the rest of the movie's good. Like I'm okay with one, but the rest of the movie has to be. I've got low expectations for this movie. I'm just gonna say like. Knowing that the producer from the previous three is involved, that lowered my expectations for this movie. Casting aside. I, I'm not sure that he is going to be responsible for any plot or even any quality of it. I just think he's a driving force to get the next movie sure. made. And the fact that they got these producers, these production companies, these stars on board. And remember, we live in a world where nobody takes chances in films anymore. Yeah. It's all blockbusters that will make money. I honestly think that we're going to get something akin to the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Okay. In tone and feel and lighting of... It's got some dark parts that are kind of dark, but PG-13 dark. And some light parts with the the swashbuckling, smiling at the camera with the wink kind of leading hero. And there will be adventure and then all of a sudden it gets serious and he's got to... And I really feel it'll be that tone. I don't think they're going to capture the magic of the first three movies. I don't think it will be as bad as the fifth movie. We're, we're putting a heavy quotation of magic in the first three movies, right? Well, no. They, oh, for Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, with, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, see, this is the problem with these Dungeons and Dragons movies. And you saw this when you got to the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. They stopped taking themselves so seriously. I want to see them take themselves not so seriously with this movie. Uh, see, I have, I have different expectations. Which leads me to my next thing. Sure. So, Dan, I asked you beforehand for our prep to come up with a hypothetical Dungeons & Dragons movie. Okay. Now, the criteria that we came up for ahead of time was we wanted to know a director that you would attach to it, three leading roles. Sure, I've got a list of like seven names, but yes. Um, A plot that's roughly broken up into three acts. Sure. A general idea of a theme, because most movies these days have a theme that ties it together 
And then kind of how you would round out a trilogy if it did well. Okay. I wrote like two pages. I'm oh, really excited about mine. Let's roll initiative and let us actually pitch our D&D thing. And as we go, we'll workshop it as well sure. a little bit. Sure. make sense. I got a 14. I got a 9. As I said before, I don't want D&D movies to take themselves too seriously. You and I are going to have two very different We're going movies. to have two very different. So I have, I've got an action comedy movie in terms of genre. Um, but I've put action comedy slash heist. Now hold on. Oh God. Um, my director is, I could go either way, either Edgar Wright or Taika Waititi. All right. You're setting the tone early with this. Right. Your cast. Well, I got Edgar Wright. So I need Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Mm-hmm. Okay. They just, they have to. Mm-hmm. Um, Sebastian Stan as the lead. It's funny. I, his name was almost written in my thing like three times. I've deleted his name three times. Um, Jason Momoa, because I want that guy to have more work, because I love him. Yeah, you just want to gargle on his nuts. Kinda. Elliot Page. Yep. Anya Taylor-Joy, which they would never get, but it's a dream. Zazie Beetz, who is from the Deadpool movie, she plays Domino. And Guy Pierce is the bad guy. Interesting. Keep in mind, not serious with itself. Sure. Act one, and I'm writing this out, and I'm just going to read what I have. Hold on, hold on. Wait. Yeah, All right, you're, gonna, you're gonna need that. You're gonna need that. Okay, so skilled swordsman and expert brooder Dorian Dumain, played by Sebastian Stan, lives a life of a simple guard. A veteran of many wars, he moved to the distant Sothos Fall for a quieter and more peaceful life. He is tracked and found by gnome tinkerer Poots Himnir, played by Simon Pegg, and dwarven holy man Halgamar Stor- uh, Stronghelm, played by Nick Frost. Two old friends that seek his help finding the mythical blade Tetanus. Before Dorian's Fuck former commander at arms, Preston Coyle, I told you, I put it in everything. Uh, before Dorian's former commander at arms, Preston Coyle, played by Guy Pierce, can find where the trio had buried it many years before. When they discover that the ancient blade had been dug up and a small note placed in its stead, they go to master thief Shadris Sanadel, who is an elf, played by Elliot Page, for more information. Shadris tells the party of a hidden tower belonging to an ancient and powerful wizard. They travel through the perilous forest to discover the tower abandoned save for one young mage, young half-elf mage named Sarah Durunadel, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, the apprentice to an old wizard. Knowing information about Tetanus, the young wizard joins the party in the quest, insisting that such an evil blade must be destroyed, not merely hidden in the woods. They travel to uh, once more to Coil's stronghold and must hatch a plan to heist the blade from his possession. Act 2. Um, Ocean's Eleven information grab scene. The party infiltrates the stronghold to gather the key components and com- uh, confirm the location of the blade. Under magical disguise, the far- party first meets Coil and his dogs of war, the barbarian Lorzak Blackwater, played by Momoa, and the elven rogue Chadra Ilstrin, played by Beats. They're training a force to assault some keep and Coyle seems dead set on leaving in a week to show the power he has gleaned from the blade, which can be seen for the first time. This is like a training montage a la Ocean's Eleven. Sure. Act three. On the night of the raid with the battle about to happen, the party chooses that moment to strike and through an intricate plan, the party attempts to steal the blade, only to appear to fail utterly when Shadris betrays the party at the climax of the heist. They are captured and left for dead as Coyle celebrates his victory, only for Dorian to pull forth the blade and behead the would-be despot. 
flash back to how this was all part of the plan. The party, having retrieved the sword from a double-double cross from Shadris, goes back to the tower and destroys the blade. Dorian admits that his life was boring before and commits to more adventures with his friends. Okay? Reason why I did this movie this way. I, I really want to focus on the inter-party banter. Of the focus of a D&D movie has to be the party. More so than the monsters. The monsters need to be present. And I mean, there's going to be a dragon in here somewhere. There's going to be uh, fights and whatnot in here somewhere. This isn't a Batman movie. Where a Batman movie is about the villain. Yeah. This it is has a, to be about the party. It has to be about the party. So I want a director that can handle that. And Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Edgar Wright have shown through A World's End and Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, they can handle that kind of movie. But the other thing they did was, let's play on the zombie movie trope, got Shaun of the Dead. Let's play on the buddy cop movie trope, had Hot Fuzz. Let's play on the apocalypse trope, had World's End. Well, let's let's give Edgar Wright a heist movie and see what he could do with it. Um, so- I mean, he did Baby Driver, but... Oh, he did do Baby Driver. And that's a great fucking movie. It is. Okay. Anyways, so I completely forgot about Baby Driver and now I'm sad because <laughs> there goes my movie plan. Anyways, so the second movie, which I want to have a war movie feel like Black Hawk Down, will have Dorian return upon uh, summoning from uh, Sarah who says that Lorzak survived the previous movie and assembled a force to take out Dorian and his crew. A revenge plot. Sure. Halagamar has already been killed and Poot gravely injured, while Shadris is nowhere to be found. Dorian then embarks on his own, partners with an unlikely ally, the former enemy Chadra, played by Beats, and slays the evil Lorzak, who has uh, contacted the mysterious creator of Tetanus to fuel his vengeance. Okay? Third movie. The third movie is about bringing down the evil force that created Tetanus that has possessed one of the allies from the previous movies. I kind of want this to feel like a fantasy Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Okay. And that's pretty much as far as I got on that. I want there to be weird magic shit. I want there to be great inter-party banter, which is why I, if you can't get Edgar Wright, get Taika Waititi. That guy's great at that level of shit. And all of these actors got some caliber to them, have got some wit and some banter to them. We saw Sebastian Stan in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We know that Guy Pierce has been in countless movies where he's he's been able to do the banter, not not mentioning being the bad guy from Iron Man 2, right? Mm. So, like, this is the idea I went with my Dungeons & Dragons movie. Uh, man, I, I like it. You just, you're going from the funny to the war zone? Well, yeah. It, I want there to be a, a drastic change of feel. And war zone-esque, like Black Hawk Down-esque, I still want it to be an Edgar Wright film. Right, I still want it to be a Taika Waititi film. Sure. So, like, uh, you know how Taika Waititi took the incredibly uh, comedic, humorous subject of Nazi Germany in oh, Jojo, Jojo Rabbit, Rabbit. yeah, uh, and made it hilarious, but had some incredibly heart-touching moments there. Yep, I want that treatment to a D and D movie. Sure, okay. What do you got for me? All right, so I went with the director, and I'm like, okay, I want a big blockbuster, and you know who the blockbuster? Oh, please is, do not is- say Michael Bay. No, dude, come on. I'm not, I'm, look, I took your shit seriously. Okay. Listen, the only name in blockbusters right now is the Russo brothers, right? And that seems like an obvious to go to. So I actually pulled away from that and I went with something else. I have not seen Jordan Peele misstep yet. Oh, okay. You have my interest. And I'm going a darker route. Of course. So um, my lead actors are uh, Alicia Vikander. 
I don't know, recognize the name. She played Lara Croft in the oh, yeah, okay. recent yep, yep, Tomb Raider. Yep. And she was really solid. That movie was kind of a wet fart, but she was really solid. She was also in Ex Machina, right? So she's done yep. some weird stuff. But most importantly, she's won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in hmm. The Danish Girl. So she's got the fucking chops. Cool. This. All right. So it was hard to find the balance. I also want um, someone who's got that little bit of a roguish feel to them. So I went with uh, Aiden Gallagher, who played number five in the Umbrella Academy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. He's 18 now. Like he can be a leading man. He's got some acting chops too. I like how we both pulled from the Umbrella Academy for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I went with uh, Ryan Reynolds as well. Yeah, I, I I went with every single thread of my being. I'm like, Ryan Reynolds is my main man. No, I can't do Ryan, Re- Ryan well, Reynolds. He's not, no, he's no. not my main character, and here's why. All right, so we're going to start off with a young woman who is used to being a squire to a knight, but the knight has fallen into dishonor, and it has his title stripped from him. This will be the opening credits or the pre-credit bit, right? Desperate to find her place in the world, she's pledging to an explorer's guild to become a member. So I'm trying to hit the D&D staples. Yeah, okay. Because she doesn't have traveling papers and she's not a citizen of the kingdom, she's assigned as a helper to a ragtag group of adventurers who are also not official citizens of the kingdom, but are part of this adventurer's guild. So they're like the C team. So so but your main what, character is the henchman. Yes. So I love it. So she's hired on as a helper to them. Okay, so it's this group of characters, and all of these characters are literally going to be your D&D stereotypes. There are 13 of them. Eight of them will be stereotypes. Five of them will be kind of fleshed out characters. Okay. Because we have 13 classes, and I want to hit that. They all operate underneath the Queen's rule. There's a variety of D&D races present among the group and whatnot. And you can see that these guys are all going to exemplify what kind of character you can play in the game. Um, but they're mostly cannon fodder. And, sure. And we, yeah. will, we will get to that. They're all going to be super cool or interesting in their own unique way. Five of them, uh, like I say, will be real and fleshed out, including Aiden Gallagher's character. All right. Uh, it's also important to establish that there are definitive kingdoms laid out on a world map with large swaths of wilderness between the kingdoms. The kingdoms provide safety and stability to those willing to pay taxes and live under rule without question. These are city-states with rigid codes and customs. So we have the real border feel to them beyond the city walls. You want to live in a city. Most can't afford it. And some don't want to be a part of that rigid uh, oversight. Okay. So we lay all this out in theme and whatnot early on. Act 1 lays out that there's an elven countess who has run afoul of an ancient red dragon. He has her under a spell which keeps her in suspended animation, but also invisible, which is a sequester spell. I tried to stick with the source material. She's been hidden away in his lair, which is an old abandoned fire giant's forge deep in the boiling wastes or sure. something. Yeah. You know, volcanoes, right? Red dragon. There we are. Yeah. Her pseudo dragon familiar, voiced by Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Offers a great reward to those responsible for rescuing her. So we just watched Detective Pikachu the other day. Again, I think it's the yeah. fifth time I've seen it. Oh, really? I fucking love that movie. Yeah. Um, I'm on board with sure. this plan. <laughs> Um, if she isn't returned, there's talk about an elven kingdom who's going to march to war. Um, and the closest elven kingdom is to the west. And that is going to be a really bad thing because uh, even if they just lower their arms and decide not to be a part of this conglomerate of kingdoms, that's going to let the goblinoid host that is amassed beyond them invade the kingdoms. You know, sure. So, okay. um, so we need to keep the elves happy. 
Now, we get to see travel, training, budding friendships. Act one is all about who are these people and, and we watch them work together. All 13 of these. Yeah, but think of um, think of Atlantis, the Disney movie. Yeah, but... Well, they had a huge crew, but there's really only two or three that matter. We are going to just have the lizard folk barbarian grunting around in the background, eating, like, chewing on a bone. Right? You will get your feeling of what a barbarian that can rage is. Okay. And what a lizard folk is without diving into monologues and whatnot. So, like I say, eight of the 13 are broad strokes characters. They are there to be representatives. Okay. There are some bandits we'll see. We'll get some scuffles. Uh, we'll lose a couple of characters along the way. Uh, one is going to quit to follow debauchery. Probably the bard. Okay. Um... Because I want to remove that, like, I, I have to wink at it, but I can't. Yeah. Like, they're going to get to some town, and he's going to be like, brothel, hey, and you're missing a leading man, a leading act here? I can make more money in a week over here, and I get all the half-elves I want. So you guys just go about your your business. I, I was sure. in this for the, I found a better deal, right? But another is murdered in a back alley by an assassin's guild, and uh, he's traveling with the bodyguard. And the bodyguard strikes out to get revenge. So there's another two that are gone, right? So we'll get little pieces of this. And we're getting kind of general side questy feels from a lot of this as well. Sure. Um, but I want to spend about 45 minutes of the movie playing in this Dungeons and Dragons realm. A lot of prancing pony level yeah, adventures yeah, yeah. and shit too. Um, you get the impression that the world outside the kingdoms is wild and dangerous, even in these small border towns. Act 1 ends with a choice to cross through a black dragon's territory or go through the wildlands. The wildlands have been fraught with reports of wild hyena attacks. Okay. Act 2 sees the adventurers discover that they're deep within Knoll territory because they avoided the black dragon. After a vicious attack that whittles down their numbers, the adventuring party flees into the black dragon's territory where they use a river to lose the Knolls, but then they get horribly lost. Up until this point, Aiden Gallagher's character has been... One of the young adventurers, probably like a rogue or a ranger type, right? He seems to know a little bit more than he lets up. Maybe he's a he's a sorcerer or whatnot. Okay. Um, but he kind of, he's been around the block. He's younger than she is, but he knows how it is. You stick with me and I'll show you. And he's kind of smooth and, and whatnot. Sure, yeah. And you're setting him up not to be a love interest, but to be, when you say who are the two main characters, he's number two. Yeah, okay. So they are running from bullets, maybe giant spiders, wild griffins. These kind of things are threatening the party. In this area. Um, and then they end up... I would love to see a bullet in a movie. Right? Yeah. Um, and then they end up getting caught in a trap and realize that they've ended up as prisoners of kobolds. The kobolds take the party to their adult black dragon master, who offers them a Sophie's choice, just to watch them squirm. The dragon monologues for a bit about power, rambles about hating inferior dragons, uh, especially ones that are on that are bordering on his land. And uh, the short-sightedness of humans and so on and so forth. Well, they make their choice to see who will die to earn the freedom of the others. But they end up choosing one of the characters. They end up choosing our main character. She's the least experienced and is not a full member of the guild. And uh, Aiden Gallagher's character says, no, we can't do this. And he's champions. So the Black Dragon says, well, fine then. And kills Aiden Gallagher's character. Okay. All right. Big heart-wrenching moment. And the rest of them are set free. And she feels separate now from the rest of the group who voted to kill her okay in the chaos of escaping the party gets reduced down to four members act three kicks off with the survivors fleeing into a known village where they're given the opportunity to rest when they rest the others come to her and apologize and they try to make amends as best they can but she's grown now to sleep with one eye open 
the way that someone told her to at the beginning of the movie. Maybe because they have a signet ring or something else, one of their fallen comrades, that gets them this uh, this gnomish village on their side. But they heal up, restock, and they're offered little boons and magic items to help them fight this red dragon that the gnomes didn't even know about, but instinctively fear. As they leave, the assassin from before uh, reappears, and it's a drow who doesn't speak common. There's a fight. The drow is defeated and killed by the bodyguard party member who had disappeared before, who now shows up again. Unfortunately, she had to make a deal with the demon prince to get past the gnolls, but is convinced that she knows a hag that can remove her curse and newfound abilities once they return to the kingdom. You're trying to shoehorn a lot of D&D in this one movie. It's all just a lot of little bits. Of, I know a witch that can. The D&D yeah, okay. people, I made a deal with a demon lord, but it's okay, right? You're just getting a whole lot of different feel and flavor through this, but the story is about the party and the interworkings of the party. Yeah, yeah. So they move on. They get to the uh, old fire giant fortress and find it's been laid to waste. So they descend into the forges and below into the prisons. I thought it was important to have dungeons and dragons, plural, in both. Mm-hmm. Um, which the second D&D movie did, but yeah. the others didn't. Using a magic item, they see a body on the side of a huge chamber, but it's difficult to make out. As they approach the body, an old nobleman steps out, tries to persuade them from disturbing the countess. Uh, the pseudo-dragon cuts him off, and in the moment of indecision about what to do, drow and driders swarm the room and attack the man. He polymorphs into his true self, a gold dragon, and it's a big set-piece three-way fight. Sure. Dragon kills the drow, party kills the dragon. Okay. In the end, the Countess wakes up only to, real, to reveal that she's an elf, but she's actually a drow. Okay. She thanks the pseudo-dragon and reveals that she's ready to continue the plans to invade the surface world. The heroes fight her, but she's a powerful priestess of Loth, and the Countess summons on Yoklols, who summon in demons, who rip open the earth and release a drow army, and the warlock sells the rest of her soul and damns herself to teleport everybody back to the original kingdom where they pass on the information to the queen and are made members of the kingdom. The guild is taken on to act as advanced spies and scouts, and they're set out to track the movements of the enemy and warn the other kingdoms. The main character is offered to spend some time training and is given the option of which class she would like to attend. And this is where you get to see which of the 13 paths she would go down. Sure, okay. All right, end credits. So my theme here is going to be, you know, if you believe in yourself, if you got the willpower, don't, like that's you're, my big... Yeah, you're kind of going with like that... Uh... Uh, young adult movie uh, feel a little bit almost like that that self-empowerment feel it's a common one in I mean it's not that's not just young adult man Ant-Man was about that the yes, first Iron true. Man was about you're, that yeah that, you're you're not wrong about so, that so dig deep find it within yourself and push hard right and that's that's going to be the big thing the sequel is going to be about the incursion uh, down into the Underdark and a mission for the old heroes and a few new ones to go down there they're taken as political prisoners we get to see the Drow Society and Loth and the Abyss mm-hmm uh, the Act 2 set piece fight, and this one will be a beholder because we're in the Underdark. One of the side plots is that uh, the disgraced knight from the first one begs to be given the chance to restore his honor, but doesn't live up to his end of the bargain, and our main character is forced to execute him. So that one ends in a real down note. The final film starts off with them on the run in the Underdark and has them run afoul of an illithid colony that has been pulling the strings of the drow since day one. A drow enemy becomes a new reluctant ally. Maybe a Yugoloth swaps sides for the right amount of gold. And in the end, the set-piece encounters with the powerful demon. I'm thinking of Glabrazoo. Sure. Just because of the Dragloth yep, yep. drow connection there. Ultimately, the remaining good guys get home to their half-destroyed kingdom and find that the queen has been killed 
and her young son now rules. He declares that the war is over, the forces of the Abyss and the Underdark have been driven back, and then Knight's our main character, and that ends her story arc. She gets that knighthood she always wanted. Yes. So, I really wanted to touch all of the major villains of Dungeons & Dragons. I wanted to hit all of, like, the... Not all of flavor. You'll notice that there are no orcs to be found no. in this. Yeah. I'm avoiding that shit. We did that World of Warcraft. We've done that Lord of the Rings. Give us something new, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I could not find out a way to work in an airship or any sea travel. Like, I really <laughs> sat down and tried to work on that. But what are, what are your thoughts on this? Honestly, man, I like it. It, it feels a bit um, fully loaded, right? Like, when you have a, for 45 minutes of the movie, a recurring cast of not a recurring cast but like a a supporting cast of 13 people but they had 11 in oceans 11 how well did you know the two stunt drivers casey affleck and his buddy yeah no i'm with you it can work that that that's what that's what i'm trying to say it just feels full especially when you're trying to take on because with oceans 11 you don't have to learn much about the setting but here you do Right here, you've got to learn about everything. It's brand new, open book. Right, right. But that's the thing is, she's with more experienced adventurers, so that yeah. you get to see it through her eyes the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like that perspective on it, um, and I like the fact that Drow feature heavily, heavily, like, and not a Dritzed clone, which I am so afraid we are going to get is Dritzed in in this new thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think they're going to cast Chris Pine. As uh, that Chris. would be bad. Yeah, that'd be bad. But I don't know who you would cast. Anyway, before we uh, move on to our last fun little exercise that we challenge ourselves with, I just want to say to all the DMs out there, coming up with a plot line and an overarching idea of how to run your Dungeons & Dragons um, for the next three years is all well and good. But remember, your players are showing up on a week-to-week basis. Remember to stay flexible. It's a big thing that we see a little bit too much of in Dungeons & Dragons Mm -hmm. movies is that they obviously compromised yeah. more than once yeah. for the sake of getting a film out there when they probably didn't need to. And I bet it actually hurt the brand in the long run. Mm-hmm. Nah, I'm with you on that one. So don't force your hand to get your precious story out there because it may hurt your table. So my my big message this week to everyone based off of watching these films is go with the flow and make it work the way that it should work with the people that are there. Well, guys, if you want to get a hold of us in any way, shape, or form, you can uh, reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and at r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. Reddit's going to be one of the best ways to get us. That's where we're the most active. If you want to send us an email, you could reach us at info at it's a mimic.com. Um, and any questions you ask will get added to the mailbag question lists, which by the roll of a dice um, will be answered during one of our mailbag episodes. Dan, do you have any final thoughts about the movies that have come out or what we want to see out of future movies or any of that? I want them to take the subject matter serious, but not themselves too serious. And that's that's my big thing. Um, I've been disappointed by fantasy movies so many times in the past that I'm going into this expecting to be hurt. I really, really, really just want to see dark fantasy done well. And I don't mean dark, gritty, Constantine-level fantasy. I mean, we have not had a proper dark fantasy movie in a very long time when was the last one legend oh geez the yeah. dark crystal yeah oh my goodness right anything in the shadow I mean, of probably... david bowie's package and labyrinth yeah we're 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 probably missing like secret of the nim like there are some out there that are like dark, iconic yeah but i mean off the top of my head dark fantasy i mean it doesn't really exist without it 
traipsing around in sci-fi land, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, or have animatronics. Yeah, look, I'm fine with puppets and animatronics to a degree. I mean, it worked great in... Yeah, fuck the... In Dark Crystal. Well, I was going to say Jurassic Park, right? Oh, like, yeah. We've yeah. seen some good work with that, as long as it is good work. I want to see Dungeons & Dragons flesh out a world. Every three lines should have an audience member go, Oh, that's neat. I wonder if we'll get to see that. Mm-hmm. I don't want name dropping. I don't want it to be a whirlwind tour of. But give us the danger. and Make me want to be a hero fighting back these monsters. And, and go into these border towns. And you know what? Come up with a campaign setting that people will want to play in. Yeah. Now is the time. Fifth edition needs a campaign setting that is not Magic the Gathering, Forgotten Realms, or Eberron. Critical Role is great, but I want something that the general public and not the people, the nerds that can spend four and a half hours a week, every week for their entire lives, watching (laughs) a a freaking stream, right? So... So I like the idea of expanding and world building, and I want that with generic adventuring and some real heroes that you can exist that can be inserted as NPCs into games and shit, right? Whatever your main character's name is should have a whatever's guide to and then their world as a as a source book, right? Yeah. So you you want to see a D and D movie that has uh, in the credits advised by Chris Perkins? Yeah, I'm I'm. Actually kind of losing my love affair with the Watsy team at the moment. They have struck out on some pretty big books recently and I'm I'm not real thrilled with it. Yeah, okay. So um anyway, before we wrap this up, Dan, have you ever watched the D D television show, the cartoon from way back when? Uh yes, way back when. I have not watched it recently. It's about 20 episodes long. I didn't do a deep dive. I watched the first episode because I found it free on YouTube. And it's cute, but it's very much in the Ninja Turtles G.I. Joe era. Yep. It feels a little He-Man-ish. I love that they made a choice to make the Barbarian the youngest kid. But the basic premise here is that a bunch of kids go on a Dungeons & Dragons roller coaster. And they get sucked into the real Dungeons & Dragons world. And they've got to defeat an evil lich. Cool. And it's 20 episodes long. There is there is a surprising amount of continuity, a whole lot of feel-good messages, and at the end, they go home. It actually gets a wrap-up. Cool. Yeah. I recommend, Dan, you got kids under the age of seven. They would love this. I was cool. sitting there watching yeah. it going, young kids of D&D nerds should watch this. If there's some way for you guys to find this out there in streaming land, if you can get your hands on an old DVD of it or whatever, check it I'm, out. I'm fairly certain it's... It's entirely on YouTube. Could be. Yeah. Um, but I recommend that that people do look into it. It's not going to be enough to f- keep my attention, but I would absolutely sit down while I babysit your kids to watch four or five episodes of this. Cool. Right? So, um, so it's definitely worth looking into. Did you also know that with all of this news with the movie, another thing kind of snuck under the radar in terms of D&D media? What's that? Uh, D- Dungeons and Dragons TV show. Oh, directed I... and written by the guy who did the John Wick movies. Is this real? Do I have to Google this now? You have to Google this. All now. right. Stay tuned next week when I have finished Googling this now. And we will come back to talk about more inspiration for uh, D&D from Hollywood. As Dan and I have got a couple of fun little exercises we've <laughs> we've thrown together as we wait for all of our friends to come back from their gallivanting about the multiverse. So, so that's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please, pass the word to everyone you know 
that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. All right, Adam, we've been talking about this stupid fucking run of movies for the past... Too long. Too long, yeah. And uh, it got me thinking, we've talked in the past about what we get for inspiration from movies, and because you and I are such big cinemaphiles and, and love... You keep saying that, it's cinephiles. It's sure. Cinep- a cinema's the theater. Sure, we're cinephiles. There we go. Um, I'm a cinephiliac. That, I think that means something different. I know. Okay. Anyways, but because we are such large lovers of movies, um, it always comes across that we, we talk about how a lot of our inspiration comes from them. And I want to ask you, outside of movies or TV shows, yep. and because it's just a low-hanging fruit, books, where do you find your inspiration for D&D? Outside of movies and TV shows and books, where do you go? Yeah, grab a die. Let's do this. I got a two and you got a one. There we go. Well, this is business as usual for us. Okay. So you can tell we're dungeon masters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I've answered this question before. We did an entire episode on stealing ideas and whatnot. And I talked a lot about stealing um, NPCs from Stephen King novels. I said, but books. I mean, Stephen King novels, I guess it's a different genre. Oh, oh, I thought you meant books. No, outside of books. Outside of books. Yeah, outside of books because of low-hanging fruit and outside of like movies and TV shows, what what is the other source of inspiration for you to run your D&D games? Like the comic books count? Uh, I'd give you comic books. But I, I know uh, I the reason why I thought of this question is... I don't play video games, right? You don't play so, video games, yeah. no. Um, and, and to be completely honest, I don't, even though I do play video games, I don't find a lot of inspiration for my, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and my World of Warcraft. No, it's because um, World of Warcraft is a hot garbage game. But, we're not going to get into that. Okay. Anyways, the you said that when you were planning character arcs for us, you'd have a soundtrack going, Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that's kind of what spawned on this question. Because for me, I found that art, and not necessarily fantasy-based art, just like normal works of art or landscapes or um, stuff my kids draw, all of that kind of inspires my games. So I was like... Outside of the easy, which are, you know, the movies and, you know, a, if I was reading a good Robert Jordan book or a good George R.R. R. Martin book, I could translate that into a D&D game very well. But outside of that. Yeah, man, I, I lean on music. It's hard to get a real story out of popular music unless mm-hmm. it is designed to be a concept album. I could sit down and listen to Kid A by Radiohead all fucking day called the plot lines. Yeah. But there's a lot of concept album out there. I'm not going to turn The Wall or Wish You Were Here into a D&D plot line. I mean, I'd really have to stretch it. It wouldn't look anything like it by the end, right? No. But honestly, I, yeah, I lean on comic books. I lean on um, orchestrated soundtracks. Yeah, yeah, okay. But a lot of the time, the orchestrated soundtrack is just from a movie, and I'm reliving Jurassic Park or Back to the Future, right, when yeah. I'm listening to it. So it's hard to do that. I need those kind of more subtle things. That Game of Thrones and and Westworld kind of stuff. Um, Lost is another great soundtrack. Oh, really? The orchestrated Lost soundtrack is good because it sits in the background and it's got an emotional punch to it or it's got a tempo beat to it, but you can't necessarily put plot points to it, right? You're not sitting there 
quoting Marty McFly or Frodo or no, whoever but it, it, it is. No, it gives you that, it puts you in that frame of mind to be more open to writing some great plot lines or interacting with a character in a way with that song going. It's kind of like a, in video games, uh, I think of like the Final Fantasy series where you have character theme songs. Um, and anytime that character theme, even in like the Marvel movies, which I said not movies, but like you could see when they're intersplicing, you know, the Falcon theme with the Captain America theme in Falcon and the Winter Soldier and how that just slowly transitions him over. Right. So there's a lot of really good thematic stuff out there. I just I, I need to pick up music that is Stuff I've never listened to before, or that is familiar enough that I can follow it. I love Dvorak. He's one of my favorite composers, because I don't know most of his shit out <laughs> from just like the regular world. So yeah. I listen to a lot of him when I'm, I'm making maps and I'm thinking about plot lines and I go for my D&D drive. That's kind of serial killer-esque. You listen to like grand sweeping, like orchestra music while you are scribbling your little maps in the and like Ab- and this week i'm gonna kill dan again well <laughs> absolutely actually i i had to stop because i was listening to the mission the soundtrack for the mission uh-huh um fuck marconi is one of the best modern anyway i could go off about it it had me parked on the side of the road just staring at the ground sighing heavily going oh no this is too much <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs> <laughs>